the 1970s and 80s, you could be talking with a corporate pilot, sharing stories of the boredom of waiting for the passenger to finish a meeting and head back to the airport for the trip home. Often that corporate pilot would be wearing the uniform of the job, a crisp white shirt with epaulettes and a black tie, dark pants, and well-shined shoes. But the night before, had you been with them in the cockpit of a World War II-era DC-3 or DC-4, you'd have seen the same pilot wrestling the old cargo plane into a short strip. And behind the cockpit door, the fuselage would have been stacked side to side with thousands of pounds of marijuana, fragrant and illegal. Once on the ground, the pilot would park the big Douglas-built plane and look for the lights of trucks converging on the area around the cargo door and just hope that none of those lights belong to the police or agents of the DEA. For that one night, flying into and out of Colombia or some island in the Bahamas, that pilot could earn as much as they would for a year of flying as a corporate pilot, a lure hard to resist. In this episode, you'll meet one of those pilots as he comes clean about his past. This is Fly By Night. Jim Thurman is now retired from his career as a cargo hauling and corporate pilot. In his flying years, the cargo he hauled was as varied as automotive parts in one airplane and a U.S. senator on his way to meet a Central American dictator in another. And he hauled contraband, marijuana destined for the millions of Americans who used the drug during the 70s. But before he could do any of that, Thurman was no different than anyone who ever earned a pilot's license. He was a student pilot getting his hands on the controls of a plane for the first time. For him, that was in Georgia. I decided to start flying when I got out of high school. I'd get some money of my own. So I started in a year or so. You know, I did the whole thing in a couple of years there. I got my private and commercial and uh, uh, instructor's rating first, and I got an instrument rating, and I got an instructor's rating, and I got the multi-engine rating, and then I got, a, of all things, a single-engine ATP in a Cessna 182, and then I uh, I instructed for a couple of years at South Expressway Airport, and I instructed for years over the years a lot, uh, you know, for 30 years of it, you know, on and off, instructed everything from like DC-4s to Queen Airs, and I flew for Shamrock Airlines out of Detroit, Michigan on a C-46 and a DC-6. I'd already been talking to some people about buying a DC-4 and operating it some, or buying a, I was going to buy a couple of C, a C-46. I already had the finance and stuff. But I ended up buying a DC-4. I paid $18,000 for it. One engine on it, the rest of them sitting there, and one of them in a can, and uh, ailerons off of it, elevators off of it, uh, guts out of it. So when I had a mechanics license by then, so I made sure that we, we rebuilt that airplane. And... Uh, you know, I bought uh, engines from Davis and Monthan Air Force Base. We fixed it up, and by the time I got it all fixed, it was about 35 and it, to a smuggler, it had been worth about 80. Charlie Stallnaker and I flew that thing, and we flew to the Dominican Republic, and I flew in and out of the Dominican Republic as a, I was actually the uh, flag carrier for the Dominican Republic. Around that time, flying out of Miami area airports, Thurman began to meet more of his fellow pilots who flew legal trips by day and occasional smuggling runs by night. And just like them, once he entered the illegal side of flying, he faced a big decision. Would he only smuggle marijuana with its large footprint in large planes, or would he turn to flying the far more lucrative cocaine? 
For some smuggler pilots, the big money answered the question for itself. But Thurman says he drew the line at flying coke, in part because many times there would be guns involved. We never carry any guns. You know, we didn't smuggle cocaine. Wouldn't smuggle cocaine. It's, it's marijuana. I mean, cocaine was like criminal. That's a criminal activity. Marijuana was never criminal to us. I never saw it that way. It never crossed my mind because everybody I knew smoked dope. I got back with Jim Nettle. I went back down to Miami and flew his airplane with him a little bit. And we talked to the smugglers and they said, well, we got a, got a queen air. And we wanted to pay you $35,000 to go down to so-and-so, get that, bring it back up here to north of Okeechobee. But go down and get it. We fly it back and um, hang out a little bit there. And uh, I get $35,000 and I'm on my way. And that first trip, I thought, well, boy, this is crap. You know, this is going to be easy to do. And let me tell you something. It, the more of them you do, the, the more your Tomcat lives go downhill. You lose three or four of them quickly. You just don't realize it. There's nobody good on that end down there to take care of you, really. If you, if you crash, there's no hospital out there. And there's a couple of different factions like the FARC and then the uh, MEDAC uh, Heavy was there a little bit. And then they, in the military itself, so somebody all has to be paid off and you have to get it just right. I go down there and I remember uh, the guys came out with a big old truck and the fuel a fuel airplane. They got the stuff off the truck and put it in there, got it in, tied it down. We had enough of a path to get back. Airplane uh, at, what, 15, 1,800 pounds over gross fly like a champ. It'll, if, after it's going, it'll, it'll, it'll hold altitude, low altitude on one, on one engine, way over gross, which is surprising. You know, you just don't, a lot of people probably crash thinking the airplane won't fly, you know, or, there's rising terrain in front of them, but there's no rising terrain down there where we are. It's flat. So I go out over the ocean, and uh, hours later come up. And, of course, we come over to the Bahamas. You get down low, get right on the deck. And there was some big swell and stuff out there that day. You know, the ocean was rough and kind of overcast-like and blowing rain, so you bounce up and down. Uh, I come right up to Fort Lauderdale and run right up on the beach, hop up. Just over the buildings, you know where the towers are. You have to find out where those towers are because people have flown into them. And you go right back down in the glades in just a few minutes. You're just up and over. You go right by the airport, right by the uh, control zone at the time. Wasn't. You go up uh, probably 40, 50 miles, make some zigzags and turns, let down over a little airport, and then come back up and fly all the way up to where you're going. That kind of stuff. But I, since I was going to the glades, since I was going there, I never came back up. I just started up the edge of Okeechobee and, and landed there. Uh, we did another trip, very similar to that one, same basic thing, and then a third one. And the third one was where it catches up. Flying old airplanes with sometimes less than first-rate maintenance and flying under barely improved landing strips, strips sometimes littered with the ruins of other planes which had crashed on attempted arrivals or departures, Pilots like Jim Thurman couldn't be blamed for feeling that they could be operating on borrowed time. And then there were times when luck and skill combined to give those pilots another chance to fly. Thurman recalls one of his more intense moments when an improvised approach that began over the shoreline of Columbia and then followed a road toward a landing strip came completely apart. And it wasn't long before the plane he was flying would come apart as well. I had it marked out. I went back out and I got times from coming to here 
to the coast and then turning inbound. And I'd go down and hit this road. And sometimes I'd just have to turn off because the weather was so low. We were down, you know, three, four hundred feet. And sometimes even down to 250, 300 feet. And that's close trying to make turns. So anyway, go over and I hit that road. I think I did three times, four times in there. And finally I said, well, I'm not going to crash out there in that water. I'm going to put it on that road if I happen to see it. And I thought the road was from what I'd been seeing when I let down and looking down past that airport. A couple of times I did see it. I come up on it so fast. I said, well, you know. And I said, screw it. Gear down, flaps full, power back. And I went for the road. And we, it's surreal in a way, uh, making a, you know, by that time you're so worn out. Got it on the road. And it's going down the road. And... I hadn't seen these shacks like because of they got a uh, first part in this little town or little village like thing, and it seemed like the road just narrowed up on me. But I hit a couple of them like the posts and stuff, or like vendors are maybe there, and it's like a, a dog or chickens or something in the road, and went on down. And I, right before I got to this certain area, it there was a, like a place that crossed the road, and it was rough. A big tires you could probably slow down and go through it. I hit that, and it snatched that nose gear off of it, went down on the left side and tore that engine off, just threw the engine up, didn't come completely off, bent that over, started a fire. Of course, we we had a little bit of a problem getting out of the airplane. Got out of it. I went down in this ditch and was crawling around trying to figure out what was going on, kind of running from it because I thought it might explode. Away from the crash plane, Thurman and his crew now faced another problem the man in a uniform holding a rifle and asking what they were doing there. Soon there was talk of money, money that would buy Thurman's crew passage through several checkpoints on their way to an escape back to the States. The man with the gun was short on details of how that could happen, but it didn't take long before Thurman and his crew would find themselves in a situation more like a scene from an old comedy movie than a real-life escape. Here's a preview. It involved Bells of Hay. Uh, he said, we're going to have to, let, if us will let you go, you're going to have to have some money, $5,000. He finally gets on the phone. He calls these guys that we know. They got a little farm from there where they put their marijuana stuff together. They do. It wasn't the same people I was working with exactly. They knew each other. And so they said, well, we know Julio. We'll pay you, pay off the guys and you can go. But you, you know, so you're going to have two guys. On that road going back, you got a, a, a couple of checkpoints you got to get through if you're going back to La Siena, go Baron Barranquilla, unless you go by airplane. Nobody knows you're here. You got a passport? No, nope. we didn't have a passport, all that kind of crap. But we go over to their farm, and I notice they got this frame looking thing on the back of this truck and uh, some boards. He said, We're going to put some bales of hay on here, and y'all going to get in there. and we're going to leave one of them out, kind of put some boards across there, and y'all going to lay on it. He said, well, it'll be open all the way to the front. The guy could speak English all the way to the front of the truck. And luckily, I got the front portion, went up to the checkpoint. I was claustrophobic for years after this. <laughs> we get down there. I can't remember exactly how it happened. But anyway, we get there, and I could hear them, and they talking and carrying on stuff. And then all of a sudden, the truck takes off, right? We're in it. And they pull the things off, and I'm, oh, God, I'm through with that. And they tell me, you know, another three or four miles, there's another one. And that's the last one, right? So we go down there to that one. 
these guys all have these OM-1 grands and stuff from our World War II guns, you know, that kind of stuff. We get down there to that one. We hear all this talking going on and kind of rough talking. And a guy kept, I could feel stuff, they kind of hitting the hay. You know, and I can understand it. What you got in the hay, you right? And uh, next thing I know, uh, I hear something kind of bumping. And that guy's taking that bayonet and sticking it in between them bales. It, I was up good off the board and stuff. It went kind of under me, but it didn't even get any. It either probably wouldn't miss me that far. <laughs> I figured out what it was a little bit later because I didn't know exactly what they'd stuck in there. But this guy that was with me, they stuck him in the butt just a little bit, cut a piece out of it. He didn't scream. He didn't do nothing. He just laid there. So after we got on through, got down the way, and we were going into uh, uh, La Cienega, we got in there, and they split up from there, and this guy took uh, – Norman and took him to the, was going to take him to the doctor, but they had a kit and they doctored his butt. I saw it. It wasn't a terrible, a terrible cut. That made me real nervous. That made me sick thinking about, I wasn't going to do this again like that. You know, I'd had a couple of successful trips and here I go on this nightmare thing. But that reluctance passed. And later Thurman was at the controls of a Lockheed L-18 Learstar a version of the Lockheed Lodestar that first flew in 1940. The Lodestar, capable of hauling 8,000 pounds, served in World War II. After the war, they were sold a surplus. Many were refurbished and either flew as a passenger plane or a cargo hauler. Just like with other transport-sized aircraft, by the 1970s, they were occasionally pressed into service to haul marijuana. And that's what Thurman and his two-person crew were doing on the night they approached Florida and began to encounter problems with the right engine. As if they didn't have enough to deal with, once they arrived over Florida, they picked up a chase plane, a plane that would tell them on their way to landing at a runway in eastern North Carolina. For Jim Thurman, it was another flight that wouldn't end well. One of the engines was barking at me a little bit, the right engine, and uh, it was while it poom, poom. And uh, usually when they go, boom, 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 it's a top ring land failure. But that wasn't what it was. It was uh, 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 something in the, with the car, a pressure injection carburetor. There was something that happened with it. Um, and I would f- uh, monitor the fuel flow. And the fuel flows were good on it, but it was they were high. And uh, started flying up. And the thing uh, uh, had a few of those little stutters in it, made some noise. And, um, well, I was a good bit south of Bimini, and I said, well, I'm going to fly on up a little bit because this thing's going to run out. I'm going to try to conserve the fuel. And I was up at about 11,000 feet. I think what happened was I got a little too close up there, and they picked me up on radar. I came across Miami at Fort Lauderdale, and I didn't let down until, you know, maybe 80, 100 miles out. Of course, I'm screaming. I'm going 250, 300 knots, and that's another, hey, I'm out here thing. So then I've got a military start looking, you know. But I started listening to that frequency, a couple of the frequencies, and I picked up on, they were trailing, tracking somebody. It was me. But I kept, kept on barreling. With a load of drugs on board, a bad right engine, and running at a higher power setting that was burning fuel at a much greater than usual rate, and with law enforcement on their tail, Thurman's flight faced long odds. Adding to their problems, as they approached their planned landing at Bolton, North Carolina, 
they picked up a radio message that law enforcement was converging on the airport there, and their ground crew had begun to scatter. With everything going against it, Thurman's options were becoming more limited by the minute. It was time to dump the load of marijuana while still in the air, and to look for a place to put the Lockheed on the ground. And then I had to get out of there, so I went uh, kind of northwest bound toward Lumberton. It looked like there might be something out that way that was clear. And we went up over a swampy area, and I circled. And we dropped. We had a big bay window, so I just circled real slow and made a turn and dropped that stuff out in one spot so I could tell my guys evidently where to go back to. But I wanted to land the airplane somewhere where I could get away from it and not have it like be at an airport where the law could chase me. I was determined to keep the law from catching me. And I'm headed down to that airport, and I said, well, screw it. I'm going to go on out, being the weather so bad. And if I have to put it anywhere, I just put it in the water. We'll get in a raft and float around. So I had really no problem with putting it in the water. So we were headed that way, and I was flying along. It looked like a little canal there. And I said, and the, and the right engine quit, run out of fuel. That was the one that had been having the problem. Pull the left one back, I'm thinking, Gosh, if that one's out, this other one's going to be out pretty quick. I need to find any place I can to land. So I look out there, and as I open, this thing comes into the open, and it's a, I call it cut over pine field. There's a, uh, pine trees have been cut down there like timber, and it's full of mud. And I could see it good. I said, screw it. I threw the gear down, full flaps down, and, of course, the right engine was already feathered, and I went right over the top of the trees with a real low kind of almost stalling slip to make it just as slow as I could. And I put the power back on that good engine as much as I could just, keep, just to hang it on top of these bushes and stuff. It hit down on the gear pretty as you please for a while, just throwing mud out. And then evidently the left gear hit a stump and that right wing went down and it just plowed dirt out 700 miles away. It just went everywhere. We were just sliding. We were along for the ride and, and nothing else. And uh, this is where the funny part of this whole story right here begins. Uh, it's really interesting. Uh, I got on the ground. Uh, we got out, walked away from the airplane. It's perfectly clean. There's nothing on it. The only thing happening is that the oxygen airline is busted and it's whizzing. It's making a noise. Airplane's been up, but we're not been up. And I quickly grabbed my spray bottle which was stupid, and I spray the cockpit down and my stuff, and I wipe the yoke and all that, which we had fingerprints all over that. They wouldn't make any difference. But that was stupid. But anyway, get out, and we decided uh, uh, we knew somebody was probably going to find us. We could hear that jet flying over. And a little bit later, we heard a helicopter. And we were already out to it, like a little road. I said, are we going to stay together? What are we going to do? They said, well, that road right there looks like it goes somewhere. But we didn't know exactly where we were. We were near Bolivia. North Carolina. We get down, and we go, we, I, we decide to separate. And I said, "Well, I'm." Gonna, I told myself, "I'm going to kind of stick to this road." And the other boy said, "I'm going in the woods." And John said, "They'd never catch me, right?" But he got these. Evidently, have these uh, infrared devices. And I had a pack on. I'd had it turned around this way, and I finally got it on my back. But I had food in it and water in it, flares even a little uh, ELT, battery ELT. And I said, well, I'm going to go over here. I had, a, like I said, a blanket, one of these thermal blankets. The backside of it had a shiny top, and the backside of it was like green. So I turned it where it wouldn't be 
shiny, and I got kind of under it. I could hear things going on. I've seen a jet fly over, you know, and then some helicopters. It was 10, 15 minutes later, they're in there flying around, pop, 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 looking around. And nobody comes down or anything. I didn't see a good place from the land. Then I hear cop cars, bunches of them. U.S. Customs Service, DEA, the county mounties. In order to learn more about what was going on, Thurman decided he would get closer to the cops and agents that had set up a command post along a road that bordered the clear-cut area where he crashed the Lockheed. Besides, it had been hours since he had eaten, and he was getting hungry. Close enough to notice that the agents all had what appeared to be a black armband, Thurman says he fashioned his own fake armband out of some dark leaves, walked straight to a truck where the cops had set up some food and drinks, and helped himself. While this was going on, the cops had picked up his companions on the ill-fated flight. I know I'm going to give up sometimes. I took a piece of sawgrass, one of them flopping things, laying down in the grass, and it's real soppy-like, and I wrap it around my arm. It's just like, like that back band that they had on. And I walk out straight to the hamburger and coffee cup truck where the Coca-Colas and the hamburgers, big pile of them sitting there. I get two hamburgers, a big Coke, and some fries, and I sit on the bank. And I'm eating it. They're walking by like that. And the guy comes by and says, who are you? He's kind of laughing like, you know, like, I hadn't seen you before. And he's standing there staring at me, and I'm eating. I just have finished the last hamburger, and I'm sitting there with that Coke. I got my arm up like that, and I shouldn't have. should have had it down. But I, I remember I had my arm up, and he said, he's looking right at me, and all of a sudden his face just goes kind of like a dog has found something. And his pistol comes up and said, freeze, fuck on it. Roll over, Dan, get your arms out, and all this stuff. So they got me. So they took us all into near, somewhere in, uh, near Bolivia somewhere, and they fingerprinted us. As dark as things looked for Thurman and his crew, because of their earlier airdrop of the drugs, the agents and local police didn't find any contraband on the plane. So in the end, all they could do was to charge Thurman with a violation of customs laws, a violation that resulted in a maximum fine of $1,500. With that, Jim Thurman and his crew were released, walked away feeling lucky that they had not only escaped the crash of the plane, but had avoided years in prison. Looking back on his time flying big loads of pot in big airplanes, it would be easy to suspect that it was the lure of big money that was hard to resist for Jim Thurman. But he says the answer is much simpler. It was another payoff that mattered more. It wasn't the money. It was the adrenaline rush. Fly by Night is brought to you by Midnight Flyer Media. Theme music is Darker by Henrik Anderson with additional music by Abe Stites. Show art is by Aini with additional design by Abe Stites. The show is produced and hosted by Charles Stites with editing by Abe Stites and additional audio support by Resonate Recordings. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review and subscribe to Fly by Night wherever you get your podcasts. For photos and more on the key players in each episode, visit flybynightpodcast.com.